In order for this study to make sense, I'm going to have to do a little bit of background. So go back to chapter 24 of Acts. I've entitled this message this morning, Almost. And in Acts 24, what we have here is the high priest and this guy named Tertullius, who is going to be speaking on behalf of the Jewish people that hate Paul. And they're laying out their case uh, before Felix, who is the governor in Caesarea. And their complaint is mainly that he's disrupting, Paul is disrupting the whole world, especially Jerusalem. And uh, the things that they're condemning Paul for simply are not the facts. One example that they gave in verse 6 that this guy Paul is profaning the temple. And they said that because they thought that Paul brought a Gentile up on a temple mount, and he did not. So there's a lot of misinformation that's been given here. Um, And he wants to judge him according, we want to judge Paul according to our law. We don't want Roman involvement here. So that's what's going on in the first part of chapter 24. And... um, um, in verse 10 then Paul after the governor that would be Felix nodded for him to speak okay Paul what's your side of the story they're saying you're causing all these problems and, and now being a Roman they have to have just cause to um, enforce any punishment so that's what's happening here Paul is laying out his defense basically um talking about his own Judaism and that he is um, indeed not doing any of those things, but he believes that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the coming of the Messiah. And um, he goes and says, listen, I was more radical than any of them condemning these Christians. I was on the way to Damascus to get them and throw them in jail, and he's giving part of his testimony here and so when Felix is listening to his Paul's defense um, let's go to verse 19 and this is Paul speaking now they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me that's Paul talking about the high priest and these other elders that came down from Jerusalem or else let those who are here themselves say, if they have found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, and when it says the way, he's talking about Christianity, uh, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision in your case. Now, this is a guy who broke up the fight uh, when they were beating Paul. Um, this commander sends uh, Roman soldiers down there, and if they wouldn't have broken this thing up, they would have killed Paul right there on the spot. Um, so he's gonna, he wants to hear, the governor wants to hear from the commander. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends and let him come and visit. 
Then it says, and after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, 25 is important. Now, as he reasoned about, number one, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And I want you to just stop and think for a second. How would you like to be witnessed to by the Apostle Paul? Can you imagine? I mean, probably the greatest evangelist of all time. And if Paul's witnessing to you about righteousness, self-control, and judgment, there was an anointing upon Paul's life that brought the point across very clearly to the point of this guy's believing it to the place where he's afraid. He's afraid, but he's not doing anything about it. And he answered and said, go away for now, and when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Ever have that happen to you? (laughs) I've had that happen to me. Um, Come back another time. Uh, We all know people who have listened to us, um, but they blow you off. And they say, um, you're making too much sense, let's talk about this later. And um, uh, that brings us to a change of governors in verse 27. It says, after two years, Porcius Festus uh, succeeded Felix. So we have a change now from one governor to the next. Uh, Wanting to do the Jews a favor left Paul bound. So Paul has been in uh, Caesarea uh, in prison there. That brings us a, a quick review of chapter 25. And in chapter 25, we have um, um, them coming down. Uh, verse four, Festus answered, and Paul should be kept at Caesarea. Uh, they wanted to take him, I think, back to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, that, and Paul should be kept at Caesarea, that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault that is in him. So he's laying this, um, this all out, his side of his story. Um, he's explaining, Festus is now, wanting to, in verse nine, wanting to do the Jews a, a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now Paul knows what, what's gonna happen to him when they brought him, remember, from Jerusalem to Caesarea? The 300 soldiers that accompanied him when they found out 40 men had bound themselves with an oath, we're not gonna eat, sleep, or drink until we kill Paul. So you get him, go to the Roman commander and say, well, we just wanna ask a couple more questions but on Paul's way to you, we're gonna kill him. So now they want him to go from Caesarea back up to Jerusalem, and Paul's not dumb, he's, he's thinking no. Paul answered, I stand before Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. Verse 11 is important, for I am an offender or have committed anything worthy of death. I do not object to dying, 
But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. And then he says this, I appeal to Caesar. If you're a Roman, you have the right to appeal to the highest court that you want to. And in this case, it's Caesar himself. He says, I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. I know what those guys are up to. I'm a Roman. I want to be judged as a Roman, so I appeal to Caesar. This guy can't do anything about it. He's Roman. And um, now we're introduced to King Agrippa, and that's what chapter 26 is all about. So after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Why? Because he's the new governor. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case out before the king. So here's the new governor saying, I got a problem here. I got a guy that the Jews up in Jerusalem want to kill. And um, he's appealed to Caesar. I'm in a bind. I don't have any charges against this guy. And I'm supposed to send him to Caesar? Caesar's going to say, What's the charges? And there really is none. They came right out and said, I found nothing in this man worthy of death or chains. And um, that's the rest of all the way up to verse 22, where Agrippa, after listening to, to this new governor, Festus, he says, you know, I'd like, I'd like to hear that this man tomorrow, he said. You shall hear him. All right, I'll, I want to read the last five verses here. So the next day, and this is going to be important as we get into more depth of the study, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium, I want to tie this verse here, verse 23, and have you go back to verse 6, and I'm going to put something on the screen. Look at verse 6 of 25. When he had remained among them more than 10 days, he came down to Caesarea And the next day, sitting in the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. Now verse 23, this is the same place. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium. I want to take you to Israel right now. And this is that place. I've showed it before. It's an auditorium. And um, I made mention on Wednesday night, or the last time we put it up, at the center of the stage on the, on the flat part is what they call the sweet spot. And the acoustics in this place is incredible. But halfway up, uh, there's an area probably 15 by 15, and that is where Festus and King Agrippa would have sat on the judgment seat and listened to Paul. So we go to Israel and we go to this spot, where you're looking at an A spot, and this, this is the Bible study that we give uh, when, we, when we go there. Um, if you would go look straight ahead, um, in its original form, the stage would have been much higher. Whether or not they could have seen the Mediterranean Sea or not, I'm not sure. But when we're there, you can see it. It's absolutely gorgeous, less than a quarter of a mile from this building is the Mediterranean Sea. So when we read here in verse 23, here Agrippa, entering the auditorium with the commanders, 
And the prominent men of the city at Festus commanded Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of Jews petitioned me both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he's not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself appealed to Augustus, so we're talking about Augustus Caesar, I decided to send him. I got a problem. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has been taking place, I have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Well, it's a little bit more than that. If he's going to appear before um, Caesar, what's this guy here? You're wasting my time. Now there's, there's, there's nothing here, so basically the governor is asking the king, will you help me out here? <laughs> Write a letter, do anything you can, that I could, when, when he goes to Rome, so one thing we know for sure, as he appeals to Caesar, it's obvious that Paul is going to Rome. We have mentioned before, uh, there, there are those who question whether Paul did the right thing when he appealed to Caesar. No, um, actually... Uh, King Agrippa wants to hear Paul. And what I'd like to do this morning, I would like to look at different attitudes people have when they hear the gospel. Acts 26 is King Agrippa hearing the gospel. And so I'm not going to read um, up to verse 19 where Paul began our text, but I am gonna tell you what what he does say. I'll read a couple of verses just so you get the feel for it. But chapters 24 and 25 are necessary for you to have a good understanding of Acts 26. We're talking about a king here. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hands and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I was accused by the Jews, especially because you're an expert in all customs and questions which which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. You know what you call that? Buttering up the king. (laughs) He says, I'm most happy to talk to you. I know you're a smart guy. You You know the law and you got it all figured out. So I'm more than happy to tell my side of the story. And um, for the rest of it, he says, they're accusing me of being a part of this sect. He says, I want you to know that from my youth on up that um, I'm a Jew's Jew, um, more Jewish than what they are. And they know it. I grew up with them. I studied under Gamaliel. And um, I was of the strictest sect, verse five, of, I lived as a Pharisees. And now I stand and I'm judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He's quoting Old Testament scriptures. He says, I'm simply following through with what the Old Testament prophets said would happen. 
that the Messiah would be born. We find that out in Micah. Chapter five, verse two. The wise men around her don't remember. They didn't know. But they said, oh yeah, we know. But little town of Bethlehem. A little town, seven miles south of Jerusalem. And so that's what he's basically laying out his case. Verse nine says, indeed, I thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. Man, I went after him. I consented to the, the death of Stephen. And then I got papers from the high priest. Go ask the high priest. He's, he's, he's the one coming down here accusing me. He's the one who gave me the papers who said I could go to Damascus to find these Christians and bring them back and have them punished. He says, I was radical, but on my way there, getting down to verse 14, the Lord appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against a cactus. Anybody ever try to kick a cactus? (laughs) Well, that's what he's saying. And basically, Paul knew immediately it was the Lord, but he doesn't know who. He says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, and I'm gonna stand on your feet, and um, verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people and as well for the Gentiles to whom I am going to send you to open their eyes, to turn their from, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inherit and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, that it brings us um, to our text. And what I'd like to do here is Paul now just gave his testimony to the king. Turn with me to Acts chapter nine, when Paul is saved on the road to Damascus. And after he lost his eyesight for three days, Ananias, a Christian, came and prayed for him. He received his eyesight. And he says, I want you to go and pray for this guy named Saul. And Ananias says, I don't know if it's such a good idea. He's been causing a lot of problems. And this is how the Lord answers Ananias in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles. What is the next thing? Kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So what do we have in Acts chapter 26? Paul just lays out his personal testimony on how he became a Christian and now he's telling it to King Agrippa, fulfilling exactly what the Lord told him when he was converted. Um, Now, in our text, he is addressing King Agrippa and he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judah, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Uh, For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses would come. That the Christ would suffer. That's Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm 22. Uh, That he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he thus bade his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, this is about as much as Festus can handle, Paul, you're crazy. You're beside yourself. Much learning has made you mad. Um, But here, Paul stays cool, calm, and collected. And he says, I'm not mad. Uh, Most noble Felix, Festus, but I speak words of truth and reason. Now there's something about when people speak truth, watch their body language, use common sense, and use discernment, and you can usually tell if a person is telling the truth or not telling the truth. Remember the TV show, To Tell the Truth? (laughs) You get to ask them questions. Well, that's what's going on here. And I'm, I'm speaking words of truth, and I, and I think Agrippa knows it all too well. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escaped his attention since this thing was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And I like this. I know that you believe the prophets. And then he says, then Agrippa finally answers. And it brings us to our text here this morning and why the name of the study is Almost. So then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. We find here Agrippa was an intelligent man He answered, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Do you know that you can almost be a Christian and then be lost for time and eternity? How tragic it is almost will not do it. It must be all or nothing. Either you accept Christ or you don't accept Christ. No theologian can probe the depths of salvation and its meaning, yet it is simple enough for ordinary folk like most of us to understand. Either you have Christ or you don't have Christ. Either you trust Christ or you don't trust Christ. Either he's your savior or he's not your savior. It is one of the two. There is no such thing as middle ground. The Lord doesn't give you wiggle room. You either are for me or against me. That's what he said. Um, And as a result, there's no such thing as middle ground. It cannot be almost. It must be all. Why almost? Concerning King Agrippa, a little bit of his heritage. Um, King Agrippa was a member of the Herod family. And there were different Herods. And um, they were cruel. Um, one, they had great building talents. That's why they call it Herod's Temple. 
Masada, Herodium, these are places that one of the Herods built. But remember the cruelty when the wise men came and they killed all the babies two years and younger in Bethlehem looking for the Messiah. So that's his background. At the same time, he was an intelligent man, Agrippa, and a great man in many respects in spite of his background. He knew the Mosaic law, that he knew the letter of it. Paul rejoiced in this because it gave him an opportunity to speak to a man who was instructed and who would understand the nature of his charges. Here, I have to be wondering what's going through Agrippa's head. Everything that, that Paul is saying is making way too much sense. But I think he's counting the cost of what would it mean if he actually became a Christian. Like I said earlier this morning, I would look at reasons. People, after hearing the gospel, reject it. Uh, the The first reason I want to look at is one we already looked at. Go back to Acts 24, verse 25 again. Here, Festus, or Felix is hearing it, and he was talking about, I can imagine Paul talking about the judgment day, self-control and righteousness, and it made him afraid, but what he does is he blows him off. He says, I'll go away and come, come back some other time. Now, why do people who know it's the truth push it off? And the answer to that is found in the Gospel of John, chapter three. And I'm gonna have you turn there with me this morning. John, chapter three. Maybe there's people here right now or people watching live stream that know the Gospel is true, and yet they have not accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, almost. The question is why don't they? Well, the answer is given to us in John 3, uh, picking it up in verse um, 19 and 20. This is a condemnation that light has come into the world, that's Jesus, And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. That's another way of saying, I like sinning and I don't want to quit sinning. And if I become a Christian, um, there are things that obviously I can't do anymore. And so what is one of the reasons that that people do not come to the Christ, they gotta come to the light. They're born again. Old things pass away. All things become new. Good place for an amen. And so this is rattling around in Agrippa's head. He says, almost, almost. Now I would like you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, So let's go there. And one by one, I'm gonna give you other reasons that people don't come to the Lord or do come to the Lord but don't walk with the Lord and go back to their old ways. This is the parable of the sower. 
and I'm gonna read the first nine verses that I'm gonna come back and look at each one of them individually. The parable of the sower, verse one. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and a great multitude were gathered together to him. So he got into a boat and said, the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, behold, a sower went out to sow. Well, we use John Deere tractors today. But in the old days, when you, you sowed a field, it was hand in a bag, and you were whipping it out like that, and that's how you sowed the field. And it says, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured it. Some fell on stony places where it did not um, have much earth, and it immediately sprang, sprang up because they had no depth. Um, but when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no roots. They withered away. Some of the other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the disciples said, ask, Lord, what, what is this whole parable about? What are you, in other words, what are you talking about? The first one we read about is in verse four. It says, and he sowed seed and it fell by the wayside and then the birds came and devoured them. All right, we know that the seed is the word of God. He tells us so. And that it's being sown into other people's heart when it's, this parable of sower is explained in another one of the of uh, the Gospels. So um, the seed is sown into the heart, but then the birds came and devoured it and took it away. Um, Jesus explains it to them um, in verse 18 and 19. He tells them, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Now he's going to explain it to them. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, Tell me, what's happening right now? We are hearing the words of the kingdom. And it's like seeds being sown, and it's falling on different people's hearts. And does not understand it. Then the wicked one comes and snatches it away, which was sown in his heart. This is he who receives, um, this, oh, this would be the wayside, I want um, just 18 the wicked one comes. So the bird here is actually demonic forces. And verse 19, the wicked one comes and snatches it away as it was sown in his heart. So the Bible is being heard. It goes into your heart. Um, and this is what happens to some people. This can take on various forms. I call it spiritual warfare. The very first time you'll really experience spiritual warfare is if you're unsaved, you hear the gospel plainly, like Agrippa, and as you're thinking about it, the Bible tells us that demonic forces actively get involved to take it away from you, lest you would believe and be saved. As I look at it practically, it would be something like this. You've been working on your job for 20 years. And um, you've been 
working next to a guy, um, telling him what you did on Saturday night, dirty stories, everything. And all of a sudden you get saved. And you come to work the next day and the guy's saying, what's wrong with you? You're different. What happened? You didn't become one of those older rollers, did you? You didn't come on, you're not a Jesus freak, are you? Did that happen to you? And as that's happening, he's not able to stand up to, I'm gonna lose my friends here. Or you go home and you tell your wife, honey, I became a Christian today. You became a what? And she said, I'm not into that. I I don't wanna live a Christian life. And you have a choice to make. But Jesus said, he who loves father and mother, even wife or husband, more than me, is not fit for the kingdom of God and cannot be my disciple. So what I'm trying to give you an illustration of here is just how is that seed taken away? There could be other variables that you could think of. But the point is, is take it away and he's not saved. And that's what that says. So that's the first one. The second one is uh, verse five. Some fell in stony places where they, there was not much earth, but they immediately sprang up because it had no depth of earth. Now, the, Jesus explains this in verses 20 and 21. Those who receive the seed on a stony place is he who hears the word and receives it with joy. Now, I want you to think this through. He heard the gospel. My Bible said he received it. Isn't that what happened to the thief on the cross? He didn't even hear the gospel. He just said, believe on me. And he receives it with joy. Here's my question. Is he saved at that point? Think it through. Is he saved at that point? I say yes. He received it with joy. Yet, he had no root in himself, and he endured only for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word immediately, he stumbles. Oh, wow, get my sins forgiven. Man, that's great. The freedom, the joy, I love it. And then all of a sudden he finds out there's trials in the Christian life. And he hasn't got, we call, we have, this is Christianese terminology, becoming rooted and grounded. How many of you have heard that term? You need to become rooted and grounded in what? The word. We read in Peter as newborn babes, you must desire the sincere milk of the word so that you can grow. But let's say you don't. For my first two years as, as a Christian, I was in no fellowship, no Bible studies, and I had no root whatsoever. And um, that's what's happening here. And all of a sudden, you start going through trials. You wanna do certain things and you're not grounded enough in the word to follow through. And as a result, it endures for a while, but in time of temptation, he stumbles. The question that arises here, is the guy uh, saved or not saved? This will be debated. This, <laughs> this will divide a lot of Christians. I take the attitude that um, here, first side has no, no depth and he doesn't make it. He turns back. And there are scriptures that talk about turning back. 
Matter of fact, it says anybody that can bring somebody back who has turned away, know that you've saved a person from going to hell because he turned around and he came back. So that's the next one. In verse seven we find, and some fell among thorns and the thorns sprung up and choked them. And that is explained to us in verse 22 by Jesus. Now he who had received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfaithful. I believe this person is saved. Uh, For those of you who are still growing tomatoes, uh, you know that unless you um, weed your tomato uh, garden that you won't have as many tomatoes unless you get rid of the weeds. And we find here, this is the analogy that the Lord uses. He says they receive the word, hear the word, but they get caught up in the world. And the world is more important to them. And as a result, they don't bring forth a lot of fruit. They bring a lot of fruit, worldly speaking, but not a lot of fruit, heavenly speaking. Is this person saved? I say absolutely yes he is. But now we're getting into the area of, um, well, let me just read the last one and then I'll take you to 1 Corinthians 3. Eight and nine. This is what you want to be. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some 100, some 60, some 30, and then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That, I believe, is to the uh, believer. In other words, the Lord is saying, listen up. This is explained to us in in, um, 8 and 9, but he who received the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and produces some, and this, this, these numbers are important, some 100, some 60, and some 30. Some, none. How could you say some, none? Well, you have to turn to 1 Corinthians 3 to find that out. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is the judgment seat of Christ. I will pick it up in verse 9. I want to say quite categorically that the judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with your sins. And when it talks about uh, each one will give an account of the, of, um, the things that he's done, whether good or bad. Well, here's where people have a misunderstanding of what's being said here. It says, I will never be brought to shame and my sins will never be remembered again. The judgment seat of Christ is not about your sins, but it's the attitude of your heart on why you did what you did for the Lord. Is everybody with me on that? So if I do something where I just want you to have attention drawn to me and I want to receive glory for it, I always like to use the illustration um, organizations who have this check that's this tall and it's this long, it says $5,000, 
and it has the head of the company up there. Cameras are rolling, and our organization donated all this money. The Bible says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing because your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What's right and wrong here and what's being talked about is what is your motive of why you're doing what's your motive. People have, if your motive is for self-exaltation and stealing the glory away from the Lord, that's wrong, that's bad. But if you're doing it wisely, that's what's being implied here. Sin is nowhere in this chapter. Let's pick it up in verse nine. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and you are God's building. Jesus is building his church. How is he building his church? The Great Commission, through you. You're, built, you're a wall builder. And then he says, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and no other foundation can be laid, um, and built on, but let each one take heed on how he builds. So we're talking to Christians, given a word of warning, be careful what your attitude is in your building project for the Lord. For no other foundation can anyone lay except that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds in a foundation with gold and silver and precious stone, wood, hair, straw, Each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it. But it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. You know what that fire is? The all-knowing eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ who knows your motive, who knows your heart. I don't know your motive. You don't know my motive. That's the scripture in Matthew 7 where it says, judge not so you won't be judged. That's what it's applying to. I don't know why you do what you do. But the day is coming when the one with the all-seeing, firing eyes, who knows everything, he says it's going to be revealed. And that's happening right here. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, what? The motive, the all-seeing eyes of the Lord, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, all right? Wrong attitude, you don't get a reward, but notice what it says. But he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So he's still saved, even though he doesn't really have any works. And do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? So when I say, Um, the good seed fell on the good soil, some 100-fold, some 60, some 30, and then I said, some none? Well, here's the guy who had none. He's still saved, but all his works were of this world, and it's one of the reasons I encourage you guys to give to the Gideons. (laughs) It's a good investment, and it's, it's the old saying, you can't, You can't take it with you, uh, your stuff. (laughs) What a a good word for material, a lot of material. I like to call it just stuff. It's stuff. You can't take any of it with you, but you can send it ahead. And And when you gave to the Gideons this morning, you were sending it ahead. Okay, um, 
with that, I would like to turn to, um, well, my point being here, the Apostle Paul and King Agrippa. Um, Turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, and I want to show you Paul knows what his reward is, and I just want to turn to it quickly, but I want you to see it. Paul in 2 Timothy is, is in prison. He knows he's getting ready to die. So in verse six he says, for I'm already being, did I give you the chapter 2 Timothy 4? Verse six. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. He will be beheaded by Nero and he knows it. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now his reward. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to those who have loved his appearing. Well, that's an interesting verse, loved his appearing. To me, that's a rapture verse. So let's go back to... um, That's where he speaks of his own reward. Let's go back to um, thinking about King Agrippa. Almost. He almost could have been in part of that list and have no good works but still go to heaven. But he didn't. Almost you persuade me to become a Christian but he is lost eternally And Agrippa is in hell as I speak this morning. That's the reality of what the Bible teaches. Uh, But the Bible teaches there will be rewards. Let me quickly just give you a couple more. Go to Revelation chapter two. And each of the seven churches, each one of them is promised a separate reward. To Ephesus, we read in verse seven that their reward is He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Can I just stop and interject here? What is an overcomer? Somebody who doesn't turn back. Do you know how many people are turning back and going back into the world in the times we're living right now? A whole lot. I probably quoted this every Sunday for the last month. Um, Gallup poll, less than 50% people are going to church. Much less having Bible studies that talk about hell. Okay? And much less not connecting the dots biblically with current events, what's taking place. Very, very few. Uh, We have to. You know why we have to? Because we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And you get the whole picture that, you get the whole picture that way. I will give of the tree of life Well, the tree of life hasn't been mentioned since Genesis 1. And here it's mentioned again. And in the midst of the paradise of God. So that's one of your rewards. What about the church of Smyrna? Verse 17. Um, Verse 11. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He who overcomes uh, shall not be hurt by the second death. Um. Uh, the second death, of course, death and hell, it says, someday will be emptied 
before the great white throne judgment. This is where people will be judged by their works. The books will be opened. It's not the judgment seat of Christ. And it says anybody not found in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And then it goes on to say this is the second death. They died once, were in hell. Hell is emptied to the great white throne judgment and then they're cast into utter darkness, Gehenna, forever and ever and ever. This is the second death. What's the promise here? You guys don't have to worry about it. I'm gonna keep you from the second death. Pergamos, verse 17, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And uh, I'm real curious about that one. And I will give him a white stone, and on a stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Well, that's interesting. You know you're going to get a new name someday? And you know that you and the Lord are the only ones who are going to know what it is? You know what that tells me? Intimacy between a husband and his bride. Do you have a pet name for your bride? Does anybody else know? <laughs> Just think it through for a second. And I, I believe that's exactly what's going on here. All right, to, uh, turn to um, the church of Thyatira. We're looking at verse 26, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. You're not gonna be sitting around in some cloud in heaven strumming a harp. No. Our, our home is in New Jerusalem will have probably daily access instantaneously to earth for the first thousand years and we're gonna rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And to him I will give power over the nations and he will rule them, he hears Jesus, will rule them with a rod of iron as a potter vessel has broken the pieces and I, as I have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The promise to the church of Sardis, verse five, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Well, that just brings up questions that imply that it's possible that it could be. Uh, But it won't be. But or name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now this is almost unthinkable uh, to me. Someday, Dave, Jesus is gonna say, Father, this is Dave. And he went to Calvary Chapel of Appleton, was there for a long time. And I'm confessing him before you and all of heaven that he's one of mine. That's what this verse is saying. Put your name in there because that's what it's talking about. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I especially like the church of Philadelphia and the promise given to them. The biggest promise, I think, is in verse 10, because you have kept my commandments to preserve. In other words, hang in there. I'm gonna keep you from the hour of trial which has come upon the whole world. What hour, what trial could possibly be come upon the whole world except the great tribulation. It'll affect the whole world. And what is he saying? I'm gonna keep you from it. Well, how's he gonna keep us from it? We're out of here. That's why there has to be a rapture. 
this church that was small in strength but kept his word, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. The last one, um, he also says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The last one is in verse seven, uh, seventh letter, Laodicea. And um, that's verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's go back, we'll begin to wind this up this morning to Acts uh, 26, which is our, where we are in our scriptures. Almost is what he said. Almost. Imagine what must have been going through King Agrippa's head. If I become a Christian, what about me being a king? Well, turn back to Acts 25, verse 23, and it tells us that when Agrippa came in, he came in with great pomp and uh, with his commanders, with prominent men. And um, he was the man, he was the king. All this pomp, all this glory. And he's probably thinking, if I become a Christian, makes sense what you're saying, Paul. But what about my pomp? No more great pomp, no more worldly pleasures. Um, These Christians live way too simple for my lifestyle. Wealth, power, fame, almost, Paul. I believe what you're saying is true, but I don't don't want to give up all this stuff. When I got done with the Bible study this week, and I'm going to close with this right now, this is uh, my favorite devotional. And um, just so happens that when I got done with my Bible study, what I read that day on May 10th, um, no, May 14th, it's called Life in the Sun, and I'll close with this this morning. It's from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14. It says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon lived for knowledge, pleasure, wealth, power, and fame. Does that sound like Agrippa to you? Does to me, and that's what I thought. But at the end of his life, all that remained was frustration, emptiness, and an unsatisfied heart. Life under the sun apart from God is empty. Life in the sun, however, is rich and fulfilling because the labor you do for the Lord is never done in vain. How opposite that is from the things done for self, selfish ambition, goals, aspirations. Not long after you have left this earth, those achievements done selfishly will be gone and forgotten. The only life lived in Jesus 
has eternal lasting benefit. At the end of his life, the apostle Paul wrote, this is where it got my attention. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And he who has the son has life. How glorious to come to the end of your days and look forward to an incorruptible, undefiled inheritance. An inheritance waiting in God's kingdom for the one who has lived his life in the sun. The end of the road is not emptiness, sorrow, or regret. It's just the beginning. Because it says that at his right hand are pleasures and treasures forevermore. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, as we make our way through the book of Acts, we all know people who know it's true, but they're saying almost. Not willing to give up the worldly pleasures and all that goes with it. We thank you, Lord, um, for your word this morning as we consider Paul's testimony, his boldness, to be able to share, just as you foretold, witnessing to kings, and before he dies, actually gives a witness to Nero. So, Lord, may we grow more bolder as we see the day approaching. Closing again, we pray for Israel and all that's going on there. And just help us realize it's it's late. And um, we are, as Paul said, looking for your appearing and actually long for it. So go before the rest of this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.